Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the 1099 for the week of October 26th. I'm your host, Josiah Renauden. We are here on a windy, dreary day in Jacksonville. It's the kind of windy where I walked outside with my dog and immediately regretted it because she was terrified of every single tree that was kind of blowing in the distance. <laughs> but hopefully that gets better. Uh, today I am joined by the developer of Robot Roller Derby Disco Dodgeball and the man behind development studio 82 Apps. It is Eric Asmussen. Eric, two things. First, did I say your last name right? You got it. Well done. Yes. Oh, I, was, I was working on that right <laughs> before I got on. So that's good. And second, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Thanks. You made one of the greatest name, named games ever, <laughs> Robot Roller Derby Disco Dodgeball, which I actually reviewed for GameSpot. And I want to talk to you for a while because you had been tweeting quite a bit about... Um, kind of the lack of reviews on major outlets or even outlets in general for the game, a lot about uh, the Steam sales and kind of the results of that. So just to kind of start at square one, how long did Disco Dodgeball take to make and what gave you the idea for this game? Sure. So it's been about a little over two years total from like very first prototype through Greenlight and early access and launch, which was in February of this year. Mm -hmm. And I've still been working on it uh, full-time since then. So it's been a little over two years of uh, development time. And uh, I think the idea just happened because whenever I play a shooter, like a first-person shooter, most of the game is is boring, like where you're just, you're fighting these like bullet sponge enemies and you're just like clicking on the things you want to hit. Mm -hmm. The most interesting part of that is always when you're throwing something at someone, like the projectile combat stuff. So yeah. going back to my days of playing GoldenEye, uh, we would put everyone on all throwing knives <laughs> and license to kill, so one hit kill. And it was just the most ridiculous, intense, hilarious uh, gaming that I'd ever really had. Because like one nick of this knife, right, is is then it's game over, and they're just flying left and right past your head. Mm -hmm. And um, just that uh, that intensity is something that I think you get from projectiles and and the one hit kill thing. And so I thought, well, this is like this is a really fun mechanic, but there's really not any games that are focusing on that and doing that 100%. And it just kind of occurred to me that dodgeball is a perfect way to fully explore that mechanic um, and allows you to do things like uh, catching shots, dodging shots that are coming at you, ricocheting them, and had all this potential for crazy skill shots and helicopters and stuff. And it's all naturally projectile combat. And the other big plus I saw is I had just come off a game that was um, it was a competitive computer hacking game on mobile, and I think half of the development time was spent on a tutorial trying to figure out how to get people <laughs> up to speed to learn the rules. And like I, I still think like once people knew all the rules, it was a very, uh, a very satisfying and challenging game. But it just like I couldn't ever explain this game to people. So I thought dodgeball. Everybody knows how to play dodgeball. You grab the ball, you throw it at someone. And I was like, great, this is a perfect kind of change of pace and seemed like a really good niche. And, um, you know, I, I just started on a little prototype. It was immediately fun and thought, yeah, this is, you know, what I should put my bets on. Yeah. And it's it's super interesting that uh, I was actually just having a conversation with uh, former GameSpot editor Tom McShay. And he was talking about how today when you play a game like, let's say, Madden or NBA 2K, you almost have to have this background of knowledge, not only about the sport, but the series to understand all the mechanics because they don't do well to, to give you tutorials and give you videos that really explain what's going on. There's a lar large time investment like that mobile game you were talking about. And everyone knows what dodgeball is. 
Like yeah. it's there are <laughs> balls, you throw them, you catch them. Like it's it's a very simple concept, and it was like you said because it's a one hit you're out kind of thing. There's a tension to it that is unlike most shooters. Where in a Call of Duty, you know, I'm gonna get shot, I'm gonna respawn, it's fine. Like it's gonna affect my KD. It's not that big of a deal. And in dodgeball, there's bouncing balls and all that stuff anyway, and everywhere, and especially in like an elimination mode, one false move and you're done. Yeah. So there it is a certain really tense. Yeah, in that particular mode. Yeah, and especially the second you turn your back, you're like, is there a ball right behind me? Is there one that's going to ricochet off the walls? So it's 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 a really different kind of shooter, if you want to call it a shooter. Um, yeah. What gave you the idea to make it a disco game and all the <laughs> colors and like the kind yeah. of dubstep music? So I think part of that. Um, so I knew that I had to take it in some kind of crazy direction, and I was I was because otherwise, you know, dodgeball is a simple concept, and that can work for it and against it, mm. right? Um, and I work. Uh, in this indie game collective out of Boston, and at the time I was working near uh, Chiro Lam, who's uh, who runs Dejavan Studios, and uh, he he got a lot of uh, press and attention because he has really crazy sounding uh, names. So like, um, there's a base jumping game called Ah. Oh uh, yep. And uh, <laughs> so that would just like, I think like the name was so long it broke Steam's back end because they hadn't <laughs> expected a name. Long. So, you know, going through my mind was like, okay, this is a concept that kind of needs uh, some extra, you know, hooks in it mm-hmm. to grab people. Um, also, part of my development process is, is just, I play the game and I, I try to pretend I'm a complete novice. And I, I just think about, like, what do I want to be doing in this game right now? And I, I had this little, like, prototype arena set up, and, you know, you could bounce dodgeball off walls and catch it and stuff. And I had a little ramp, and I was like, man, what I really want to do right now is, like, run off this ramp and, like, fly through the air. And that would allow me to, you know, more air time to do some crazy spin move, right? And so the idea of roller skates uh, kind of occurred to me. And the roller skate part was actually, I think, critical to the game. Because if it's all just projectile dodgeballs, and you had, like, say, quake-style movement, you know, instant acceleration and deceleration... You would never really be able to hit anyone at any distance, yeah, because you would never be able to predict where they're going to go, and it just would turn into this like you just have to rush at someone, and that's not really interesting at all. So the idea of roller skates worked out perfectly because a it allowed you to do these you know launch into midair kind of thing, but it also gave you some prediction into where the enemies are going to go, mm-hmm. and having that momentum uh, makes you a little bit more vulnerable, and you have to kind of assess that risk when you're going to launch in a certain direction. And so that worked really well with the projectile combat. Um, so that was that was the roller skate part. Um, I think I just I just at the time like there there seemed to be this um, movement towards more colorful shooters. I think people were kind of sick of the the browns and grays. Yeah, the gears of you know, war. The, yeah, yeah, stuff like that. Um, I love electronic music. I love putting that in games, and I figured that the the combination like it would just be like this kind of playground where I could. Gave me an excuse to add really cool music, and I thought, oh well, like now I can also have like dance club lights, and that would just make it stand out, right? And I think that's that kind of is going to be an important theme is like picking these elements that like finding ways to to stand out, right? Like if it were just a like you're in a gymnasium throwing dodgeballs at each other, I don't think anybody would have ever you know cared about this game. Um, so just looking for these dim- differentiating factors, and then so the robot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long answer. It's a long right. title. There's right, a lot going on here. Yeah, got to explain every part of the title. The robots part, <laughs> um, basically because so I'm a one-person studio, hmm. and I have to make 
decisions very carefully about where I'm going to invest my time. And I knew that if I had human players, uh, the animations, oh yeah, plus you know online multiplayer and all that stuff, right? Hmm. Um, the animations would take a huge amount of time, and I think ultimately it would have looked worse because as soon as you try to emulate like human movement, people people are really good at noticing when it's not correct. Yes, and you know if you have this AAA studio and millions of dollars, like yeah, you can nail it. You can get human animation really good. I knew that I would never be able to do that. So by not trying to be something I couldn't be um, and kind of approaching it from a parallel direction, um, which is robots, right? <laughs> I mean, the yeah. only thing that moves is a wheel and it just, it just rotates, right? They don't, they, the original model had arms and I decided to cut them off because I wouldn't <laughs> be able to animate the throwing. Um, so, and, and it kind of works. Like your, your brain kind of fills in. They're like, oh, they're like holding this ball with some whatever magnetic force yeah. field. Like, I don't care. <laughs> Nobody cares. <laughs> You're saying there's not yeah. some deep, rich lore you have written no. up in the background <laughs> for Disco Dodgeball? There, there, is, there is some lore that I made up, like, for no reason. <laughs> but it's totally irrelevant to, yeah. to the game. You know, it's... Well, you had mentioned that you were a one-person studio. So yeah. when you're deciding this kind of stuff, even the momentum, like how much should you give them? What sort of movement? How much do you have to tweak that yourself? And do, did you ever go to maybe a fellow developer or a friend of yours and say, like, hey, how does this feel? Like, how do you tweak that? Yeah. So I think one of the keys to this game is that it was a pretty open development process from, you know, the moment it was made. I think like two weeks after um, I had opened the project, I had a web player out and I put a post on Reddit, like I'm making a first person dodgeball game, like come check it out, right? And they could just go to the website. It was, it was a Unity web player and I could play it. So I always had feedback from the very start. And it did go through a lot of tweaks about, oh, it feels too slippery, or, you know, the dodgeballs don't have, you know, it's hard to aim them, or um, or all that. So I've, you know, part of it is I try really hard when I'm playing to put myself in that mindset of, of a new player, but I've had tons of player feedback throughout the whole game's development, and that's been, like, absolutely critical. A, a ton of the features are because players suggested it. I thought, yes, that's exactly what it needs, or, you know, not exactly that, but that's a really good idea that I'll take off in this other direction. And so that's how I kind of fine-tuned it over time. And over, it was about 11 months in early access. And over that time, that's where I kind of got all that playtesting done. Yeah. And so early access wound up being, I know it's kind of a controversial thing these days, but I found it to be a tremendous yeah. way to build a game. And if you, as a one-person studio, right, it gives you that playtesting that you need. Yeah, no, without a doubt. And you said you also went through Greenlight, right? Yep, that's right. Yeah, so I mean, it's and you're right when saying that you know early access is this controversial thing. It, I think it depends how it's used and who's using it. And in your case, when you were a one man studio, like, and you have you know a lot of different features that you're wondering, is this right? Is the feel correct here? And you know, with anything like that, like let's say me as a writer, if I'm the only one looking at my work, I'm my eyes are eventually going to like gloss over, and I'm going to miss things that other yeah. people immediately notice. And I know that probably had to have happened with you. So, yeah, you said that the early access experience was beneficial. What was the, your Greenlight experience? So it's pretty interesting. So uh, when Greenlight first started, you needed uh, you know 100,000 votes to get mm. through, which is oh like, yeah, I remember that it's crazy, right? And they only would Greenlight you know 10 at a time. Mm. So I went to Greenlight uh, late 2013. And around that time, you needed about fifteen to 20,000 votes. Um, and that took me about three months and was very much helped by YouTube, mm. uh, which is funny. Like, a couple of months earlier, like, I didn't even know that YouTube 
I mean, I knew YouTube existed. I didn't know like gaming on YouTube. The degree existed. of which it, yeah, impacts. Didn't know that people like, you know, it sounds like super obvious now, but like that people would make careers out of playing video games on YouTube. And um, a friend kind of was telling me about it. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. And so right around the time YouTube was kind of taking off as a platform for for gaming and giving exposure to games, that's when I was trying to get my game out. And the two, uh, the game actually is a perfect fit for YouTube, uh, which is a really important aspect of a game these yeah. days. It has to be, you know, this kind of spectator experience as well. And, and a, a way that a, a Let's Player can express their personality, right? It has kind of be a vehicle for them. And so a game like this works out great for them. So it, it got a lot of traction on YouTube. And uh, specifically, Northern Line was a big help. And the one that really pushed it over the edge was Nerd Cubed. Uh, he had, he had uh, basically single-handedly pushed a bunch of games through Greenlight. I mean, that, that, made it, that was thousands of votes in a day. These days, I think Greenlight, it might take, you know, 2,000, you know, between one and 3,000 votes to get through. I'm, I'm all for Greenlight, by the way. Like, I love the idea that Steam is becoming full of games. Yeah. It's hard, right? It's like, a little hard to stand out, but I think between, like... Steam's discovery algorithms, which I'm a huge fan of, and we can talk about that later. Mm. Um, it it's very democratic, and I I love that games are getting a chance now, and games that you wouldn't think would would have made it through Steam in the past are now doing amazing. Yeah, I, I definitely owe my career to or my current situation to to Greenlight and, and all that. So well, when you mentioned you know there's so many games now on Steam, I think you know blessing and a curse in that way, where like you said, it is is difficult to stand out and it's i think it's a big reason why um and we might as well get right into this so you have three reviews on metacritic for this game kind of crazy so like three outlets that are credited by metacritic reviewed uh the game and on steam itself how many positive reviews do you have on it like it's a pretty shocking number like i know you had mentioned that you were one of the most positively rated games out there for Mm -hmm. a stretch of time um and you mentioned that it's a perfect game. It's crazy that you ended up developing a perfect game for YouTube with, with barely knowing that, like, gaming was this huge thing on YouTube. Right. Like, a lot of people, I think, nowadays, you know, I, I can't, like, confirm this, but it feels like some games are made for the sake of YouTube, for the sake of sure. people who are Let's Players, who have that influence, a Total Biscuit, or someone of that level to play it, because, I mean, that changes your... I mean, that could change your life. If someone of that level plays that game, and has a lot of fun with it. Like Mount Your Friends is an example yeah. where a game yeah, yeah. it's like other if it wasn't played by a lot of people like that, no one would know about it. And that changes that. So why do you think your game found so much success on YouTube and but didn't see yeah. <laughs> a lot of critical attention from sites like IGN or Game Informer? Right. It's a really <laughs> I guess if I knew the answer to that, uh, I would yeah. be in a different position. It's it's hard for me to tell. I think you know, personally I think the game has a lot of, you know, new, interesting, exciting things about it. Um, it's clear enough that people will will be attracted to it on Steam and, and are excited enough about it that they'll post a review. Part, part of the challenge in getting Steam reviews is not just, like, is it a good game, but is a game exciting enough that they want to, like, tell their friends about it? Um, because I'm sure there's a lot of games where people play it, like, yes, this is a totally acceptable game. Like, I had a, I had a good time, but they're not going to spend the five minutes to write a review. So it's can you kind of excite your player base to that level? Um, that's also why if a game like really upsets someone, then they're going to go write that negative review. Yeah. But I don't think for some reason I could ever... So I'm not like a PR person, and I could never just like write you know, an email that 
that got someone's attention. And and towards launch, I I hired someone to help with PR, and I think that's one reason I got on. There were there's a lot of um, maybe you know smaller sites that covered it, um, but just could never break through into the the a lot of the bigger sites. Yeah. Um, it just um, you know, part of me the the like bitter part of me thinks that, you know, a lot of these sites. So first off, I understand completely that a lot of press, their inbox is just flooded. Without a doubt. And that goes right back to the high volume of Steam games where not only are yes. um, major editors' inboxes flooded, every day you go to Steam, you can go there twice a day. And the, the yeah. new games, the new like, it's completely refreshed. It's a whole new list of things. And being able to filter through that and find what's worth covering has become increasingly hard. And that's a double-edged sword of the green light and things getting through that might yes. have not gotten through otherwise. And we're talking about even good games. Like, you yeah, can absolutely. go into Steam. Like, this week was brutal. I mean, there was a bunch of, like, really good games at launch, and there, <laughs> there's no way to... So I, I'm entirely sympathetic to that. So I think, like... But I do say that uh, having a presence, having a, a known personality or a known... Um, being a known entity is one of those ways that will get you press much easier. No, I agree. Uh, so if you are, uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm not bitter or jealous, this is just like a fact, like Davey Reedon released The Beginner's Guide. He made, like, a tweet about it, and it got covered everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, he totally deserves that because he made an amazing game before. So, of course, this other game is going to be interesting, too. So, but it seems like with me, that element is more important with press. Like, knowing that this person has done interesting stuff in the past or that they're just a known entity that people are going to want to read about matters more for the press than it does for a YouTuber. Whereas a YouTuber is like, I just want a game that's interesting and fun and maybe a good, good way to collaborate with other channels. Yeah. And so I think that was a bar that was much easier to pass. And I'm hoping my, my kind of goal for this game, one of my goals was that it would do well enough that when I make my next game, I can go around to people and be like, oh, I'm the developer of Disco Dodgeball. Yep. Here's my new project. You know, will you take a look at it, right? That's exactly and, the point I was going to make. Yeah, I think yeah. this one will get your foot in the door in a lot of ways, right. which it shouldn't have to be like that in my mind. Uh, it, it, you should be able to, if you make something creative, if you make something original, if you make something fun, like you said, the name attached to it shouldn't matter. And there has to be this kind of battle in your head about, I mean, I used to write for a lot of smaller sites, so I totally get that. And they're, they're, like smaller sites will very often reach out to indie developers and say, hey, can I review your game? Or all the way around, if you reach out to them, they're very receptive to it. Yeah. But the once again, you're a one-person studio, and you said you had that PR person, but there has to be a, is it worth my time to go to smaller sites with a very you know low reach or to push toward YouTubers? Like, what's the, like you, what's, what's my return on investment here? Exactly. Um, and I think... At, at some point, that does become like, I think I did do any interview that people asked me, but I can totally understand that at some point where it's like, you know, I just, I just can't, you know, do this, whatever interview, because I've done a bunch of interviews, and I need to at some point work on the game. Yeah. Um, so, but you know, this is true, the same is true the other side, right? Like, if you're trying to start up a games writing site, uh, you need uh, people to, to interview. And I, the higher profile, the better, but they're going to be harder to get. Yeah. You need readers. And the more readers you get, like, the more people you can interview. So I think, like, you know, both sides of this, but in any creative field, it's filled with these chicken and egg problems. Yes. 
you know, like you, you will get press once you've had a lot of press. You will get a lot of players and a lot of word of mouth once you have a lot of players, mm. right? And so it's all about finding weird new ways to crack those into those cycles yeah. so they can start becoming positive feedback loops. And there's no one obvious way to ever break yeah. out. Um, and it's the same way with the writer because like so many writing jobs are, hey, you need five years of experience. Like, well, there's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> there's no entry level thing. What are right. you talking about? Right. Like I need, like everyone has their unique ways of doing it. And actually, uh, so the way I had heard about your game was from Giant Bomb. I'm a big Giant Bomb fan, I, fan and I know they had played it during, I think it was their Unprofessional Fridays. Yeah. So, right. and two things. First, uh, let's start with this. What kind of boost did you see just from that video? Because that's thousands of people who, I mean, I'd never heard of the game before. And that's just yeah. awesome. And that's what did it, not only uh, from people talking about it more, if you don't mind talking about it, what, what kind of sales boost do you get from something like that? That Giant Bomb was was huge. And there, there's one uh, confounding factor, so I can't tell exactly. Um, but that was that was an amazing time. That was a month before launch. Okay. So I was still in early access at that point. Um, and right, right, like I think that day, the game had crossed the threshold into uh, overwhelmingly positive. So that's 500 reviews total, 95% of which are positive. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, it was 99%, which was cool. Yeah. Um, and that gave me a bunch of traffic from Steam. Yeah. Uh, so Steam has their discovery update, and it appears that they very heavily weight games that are rated well. In addition, it also had this huge influx of traffic from Giant Bomb. I think, I, I based on the, like, the timing of some of my sales spikes, because they did Unprofessional Fridays, and then they played it, um, or they, they talked about it on a podcast. I think yeah. there was one other video at the same time. And there was definitely like another big spike on that second video. So pretty clear that the Giant Bomb thing was, was huge. Uh, just people that had never heard about this game before. And even though it was launching soon, they picked it up right then. Uh, you know, because a lot of people are hesitant to, to buy stuff in early access. Yeah. And I think that that, all those players created a really nice bit of momentum for when I launched. Mm. Um, because, you know, when you launch like that, that day, those first couple hours, if you don't get enough sales in those first couple hours, like you pretty quickly drop off their radar. I'm sure Steam has some really smart algorithms that say like, well, this game has enough interest that if we promote it, it'll actually go on to sell well versus this game that you know, it just it doesn't even show up on popular new releases or something. Yeah. So I think having that uh, mind share right at the start was was key. So that that's a break that that absolutely went my way and couldn't have predicted that. So that was that was yeah, that was one of the huge moments in the game. Yeah. And like I said, like that's what uh, brought the game to my attention. And yeah. eventually, uh, I mean, I had reached out to you because a lot of what I uh, do, I'm a freelancer for GameSpot, but I'm, I write for them by like every week, every other week. And uh, a lot of it is assignments the editor gives, but a lot of it also, and this is a tip for later, uh, is reaching out to people like you. It's like the indie devs who um, I think, like, hey, your game looks interesting. Can you give me a code? And then I'll make sure with my editor, you know, I can get a review out of it. Yep. Uh, so how do you deal with review criticism? Um, which is something that I like to ask every developer I've ever talked to. I had uh, Greg Kasavin on here to talk about you know, his response to any sort of criticism with Bastion and Transistor and stuff like that. But how are you able to read a review and kind of like take your, the, the two years worth of development and all the hard work you know, <laughs> out of it for a second and be like, okay, what is the valuable criticism I can use to improve the game? What is something that I really think this writer might have just missed the point? And I don't mean that in a way where you're like being all bold, like, oh, well, he just doesn't get it. But there are times, right. absolutely, where you read a review, you're like, I think this person missed something here. 
Um, right. And everyone's experience is, you know, unique and they, it, it, if they missed it, they missed it. It's how it is. But how do you kind of look at reviews like that? Sure. So I think obviously when you uh, when you read a review, you always want it to be a 10 out of 10 with like, you know, glowing everything praise. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, criticism is inevitable. And I've, I've been building games for five years now. And I think at the start, you know, at first I started building mobile games, right? Mm. And when you see someone write a review on iTunes, which are not quality reviews anyways. <laughs> no, right? they're not. It's like, oh, this game's stupid or something. Like, it, it hurts a lot. But I think you do build up a, a thicker skin over time. Yes. And learn to extract the, the important message out of it and, and taking that feedback back into your game and knowing, okay, like, either for this game or the next game, you know, how can I change what I'm focusing on? Um, you know, what, or, or, uh, emphasize certain parts of the gameplay in certain ways, or, you know, make sure people don't miss certain things. Cause I think with the hacking game that I'm talking about, there were some aspects that, um, you know, maybe some reviewers just didn't, didn't see, uh, they, or they didn't like get to play that part of the game. Yeah. Um, there is, there is always part of you though. It's, it's always hurts to take, uh, criticism on, on something that's creative and personal because it's, it's an extension of of you and in a way commentary on how good you are at this thing that's so important to you mm. so but there is always part of me that's like oh man like if i were someone else would this game have gotten a more thorough review i think i always felt that when submitting to festivals in particular mm. i'm very bitter about <laughs> i'm very bitter about festivals where like you get this feedback and it's clear they didn't even like this is a multiplayer game right yeah. And for someone that like didn't play it online with other people, and like they would say that in their comment, and you're like, well, like tennis isn't fun by yourself, <laughs> right? It's like it's about the games. I usually build multiplayer games, and it's about those interactions that happen with your friends, with other people, um, the strategies that emerge in this kind of sandbox that you're just not going to see if you approach it like, oh, you know, who's what's this game by this nobody? Like, oh, you're throwing a dodgeball around this like arena, like. Instead of looking like, okay, like what what else is interesting happening here? Like why why is this different than other games? Why is this more exciting? Uh, so <laughs> on one hand, I'm trying to say like you can have a thick skin about it. On the other hand, I think there's also going to be party that's like, ah, oh, like I wish they had seen it the way you know I I saw it. Yeah. No, <laughs> it's, it's hard to it's hard to suppress that. I mean, it's even the same way as a writer. Like every time yeah. I, I remember when I first started, like any edits, I would never get mad. I'd more just get like upset. Like oh man, they think I'm garbage. Uh, but yeah, of course, the more edits you take in the same way with the more criticism you receive, you, you do build up a thick skin, but no matter what, um, and this is something I was talking about with, uh, Tom McShay the other day. Like I have, I've, um, reviewed, this usually happens with indie games. I remember reviewing, uh, a smaller game on like Xbox live a few years back and my review went up right at the embargo and then I gave the game like, I don't know, like a five out of 10 or four out of 10. I, I did not like the game very much. Um, and I just get this angry email back from the developer <laughs> immediately saying like, thanks for your review. Just want to let you know you have the lowest score out of everyone out there right now. So it looks like you missed the point. It's like, oh, right. so like immediately you get this like for me, like <laughs> it's not an anger. It's more like, oh, I f- that's okay. Um, immediately after the game got like three other four. So I was like, oh, I don't know. But right. like, yeah, that still happens. But I, I mean, you so, you know, I re- we'd be open about this. Like I reviewed your game. Um, and enjoyed it a lot, gave it a six out of 10. Cause you know, there were issues with it with me that like when I played, I'm like, oh, this could be tweaked and this could be turned around. You, you know, you had talked to me about it and you said, mentioned that you had taken a lot of some of that criticism and you had 
considered and you are working on updates. What about what are you adding to the game that you might have read in a review that maybe you were like, oh, I knew this some, this was wrong or, oh, I never thought about that? Sure. So, um, yeah, so backing up one second. So the uh, I think it's a really important distinction between like how you personally react, how you feel about criticism versus how you kind of publicly respond. And I think there have been a couple of examples lately of, of developers that do kind of go off the handle. Mm. And that's clearly not going to help you out because... It is a long-term game, and if you want to make games in the future, um, and you, sh- you should also just respect that you know someone else is like it's their opinion, yeah, and it's their job, and they can't give every aim a ten out of ten. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Um, yeah, but but right. So I think with the, what your review and um, you know just basically the sense I'm getting from the community, um, the the sense I'm getting from looking at the numbers of a multiplayer game and how people come back or don't come back over time. Uh, that the game that Disco Dodgeball specifically doesn't have these like long-term hooks that are going to keep people playing for hundreds of hours, right? And so you look at games like online multiplayer games, Dota, Counter-Strike, Team Fortress, and you try to figure out, you know, what is keeping people coming back to these games over and over and over again? And, uh, you know, part of that is you kind of need these like treadmill elements of um, yeah. kind of uh, pseudo-progression. But there is more to it. Like, for example, Counter-Strike thrives because it has this really rich competitive scene. Scene Same with Dota. And I think if I were a bigger team, that's something I would focus on too. Like, I would, I would love if I had more time to do, like, weekly tournaments and, uh, you know, prizes and, and such like that. One problem, though, is like as soon as you start introducing a competitive element, then you start running into, well, now we have people hacking the game. Now you have people getting really angry and upset with each other. Um, so right now, the community for Dodgeball is miraculously positive. Mm. It's really rare when you go into a match and someone's you know, yelling at each other. And if they are, like, someone usually goes on the forums and like, tells me about it and like, you know, asks me to, to do something about it. Um, and I think part of that is because it doesn't have this like really strict competitive edge to it. It's kind of just this game where you screw around. Yeah. So, you know, maybe having these tournaments and such would have helped. On the other hand, maybe that would lead it into another direction, which, you know, now I, you know, and anti-cheat is a, is a never-ending battle. You know, the more like <laughs> even, you know, Valve is, is always battling people yeah. in CSGO. Um, it, you can never fully win. It's like, it's like piracy. Um, so, so that's not really the direction that I, that I chose to go. So I did stuff like uh, Steam Workshop, where uh, people can create decals and hats, submit them. I add them to the game. People can, as they play, they get random item drops that they can combine into you know, unique cosmetic stuff. They can trade with other players. They can sell it on the market. Um, I'm trying to add... Um, so I just added a update where you can take any of the game modes, uh, break down the rules and mix and match them. Oh, interesting. And so you can change... So not just stuff like how hard you throw or how high you jump, but what are the objectives? What is the score value for a particular shot? You can set certain flags that so like only one team has certain power-ups or certain objectives. So, you know, you can make a mode where one team has to score a hoop in 60 seconds while the other one has to stop them. Or maybe the other team has to score, like, 10 helicopters before the time runs out. Mm. Just, like, really extending the game in, in ways that whatever players want to do. And so that's something that I think will keep 
the players that already are already excited about the game, that'll keep them around for a long time because it gives them a lot of stuff to do. And, but and, I, I know the game still needs more stuff for new yeah. players. Like, it needs more of that immediate traction grabbing stuff. And a lot of that's just kind of polish, like more <laughs> more particle effects on when you gain a level, um, more make it more obvious when you get a new item, uh, have little like badges you can earn based on the number of uh, scores of, of trick shots you score, that kind of stuff. And it just, up till now, like there's enough functionality I need to add that it just hasn't been a high priority. But hopefully, you know, over time, it's just something I keep kind of chipping away at. It's just, it's, it's a really interesting point that you had made about if you make this game overly competitive with these sort of hooks that grab you, uh, it might sacrifice the actual positivity of the community because of this competitive nature of people. So for you, it, in that way, would you say that you value the positive nature of the community over adding what could be uh, long-lasting hooks that might damage the camaraderie among right. your user base? I think it's it's kind of about finding the right balance and, I, and doing things in the right order. So I think now that I've kind of established the community as a fairly positive place where everyone's supportive, then approaching uh, some kind of competitive thing now that there's you know people that are friendly with each other, that might be a better way to do it. Or or focusing on other hooks mm-hmm. instead first. Like basically, I'm just trying everything at this point. I have this huge long list of stuff I want to add, and going through one by one, and trying to figure out okay, what's going to be the most effective way to get people into and staying in the game. So I think that's it. Just being judicious about what you're adding and and when, and and trying to figure out the priority. But a lot of it you don't you don't know until yeah. until you do it. So and and here's my big picture, really hard to answer question that I'm gonna drop on you right now. Uh, do you consider the game a success? So going out, um, you know, two years, uh, you see, you're now like working on it full time. Was it something that? And I don't, I don't, you don't have to talk about your financials all at all, but uh, is it something that you feel like can sustain you moving forward? Like, are do you feel that one it in terms of gameplay and everything, it hit a lot of the marks you were going for. And two, is it something that you can kind of not feel the pressure to immediately make another game because it was did that well on Steam? Yeah, and I think this is this is something interesting. So there's a lot of talk these days about the you know indie apocalypse is one term that's being thrown around. Games that you would think do well and then at launch, they they don't do that great. Yeah. Um, Dodgeball is almost kind of the opposite, where it didn't have a lot of hype in the press, but kind of like under the radar, it's been doing very well. I have a comfortable runway to to keep building this game and the next game. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I think people wouldn't necessarily know because it's still not, you know, <laughs> probably reached like 0.1% of people that, you know, the potential audience. Like yeah. it, people don't know about this game. But with the Steam uh, discovery, it's, it's constantly in people's uh, recommendation feeds. And so it's getting a bunch of new players all the time. Uh, so from that end, it's been, I think, a sneaky success. I don't know what the other word for that is. <laughs> um, but uh, kind of under the radar success. Of course, with a multiplayer game, you kind of... Here's the flip side of that, is the game is, has done well. But as a multiplayer game, it's always important to have a lot of players. Yes. Uh, and that's why I kind of was aggressive being in a humble bundle. Uh, because I thought, well, this this might be a chance to get a, a ton of people in, mm. and it, it helped somewhat, but it didn't. You know, a lot of those players didn't stick around because they're kind of low investment people, right? Like they get the game. Yeah, it's a part of like a five game, yeah. like for five dollars thing. So you're like, well, I don't have to play all these. 
Whereas someone that spends $15 on it, like they're going to get their money's worth out of it. Uh, so, you know, I've, and I've done various sales, but it hasn't, it still to me feels like, you know, maybe there's like three lobbies per night, uh, which when I built the game, I was very sure that the game would be functional with a very small number of players online because I knew the realities of building a multiplayer game. This is something that I think uh, a lot of games don't do right is they kind of expect that you're going to have thousands of people online or don't understand like how few owners are actually playing the game at one time. That concurrent users is this like tremendously hard number to to bump up. You need about maybe a thousand owners for every one person that's online playing your game at a time. Yeah, which is crazy and to think about. You can go to like Steam Spy and compare um, owners to concurrent players, and which means if you want a hundred people playing your game at one time, you need a hundred thousand copies sold. <laughs> yeah, which is which is crazy. And a hundred like a lot of people will look at a hundred and be like, well, this game's dead. <laughs> Whereas I'd be like a hundred people, you know, that's great. <laughs> um, so I think to me, like, I won't feel like it's a complete success until I've found a way to get this game, seeing that trajectory change a bit. Yeah. Part of that is definitely adding those hooks that'll keep pe- people coming back, and just the constant battle of like getting getting new people to to hear about it. No, how many? How much have has those Steam sales helped you? What is that? Because I know. A lot of developers have talked about like it's the difference between like your game kind of being unknown to almost blowing up overnight. What first off, how much control do you have over those Steam sales? And second, what has that done for your game? So you can schedule sale uh, whenever you want. Mm-hmm. And I actually ran an experiment recently, which is pretty interesting. And I don't think I've shared these results yet. So exclusive, get an exclusive here. <laughs> so basically, you can go into Steam and say I want to be on sale for these dates, and you can generally pick a. You can pick whatever date you want. You can also pick to be part of a week. And those are the games that show up under um, it seems front page, like games on sale this week. And I didn't do any, I didn't, I don't think I even tweeted about it. I just put the game on sale to see what would happen. And it got so much traffic from the Steam Discovery. Uh, it apparently bumps up your placement when you're on a discount, which makes oh, wow. sense. Yeah. Um, and it did more or less better than it did during the Steam summer sale. I think, so if I were to like break it down, I think lunch week is about 20% of my total revenue. And like the summer sale was probably 10%. And the, this like secret sale I just ran was, was 10%. Um, the rest has been kind of just long tail stuff. So the sales are definitely important. Um, but I think the long tail, the fact that there are people day in, day out picking up the game is is also significant. So what's what's kind of what's the future plan altogether for uh, Disco Dodgeball? Because you mentioned that you know having a game like this could kind of get your foot in the door for a follow up for another game in the future. So like people will say, hey, it's the Disco Dodgeball guy. We should cover yeah. that game. But as of right now, in your head, you said you're doing this full time. What's kind of the the long tail? I want to support Disco Dodgeball for blank number of months or years, and then at this point is when I will start kind of pushing all my resources toward a new game. Sure. So I think for now, it's, to me, because I, I still, there's part of me that still wants to see that trajectory change. Hmm. There's still important things I think I can add to the game that give it a, a shot at that at that change. Um, so that as new players come in, it actually increases the player base and it doesn't just keep drifting down to this baseline. So I'm going to keep working on the game until I think that I've actually exhausted all those things. And there's a lot. So I'm thinking maybe five or six months more of development. Um, there's things like dedicated servers, uh, local multiplayer, 
you know, more of those kind of progression fun elements, more, more cosmetic stuff. Uh, and just kind of like try all this stuff because it's possible that, that at some point, some combination of these things is going to be the thing that, that switches it. Yeah. Um, and then hopefully after that time, I can, I kind of want to take a, uh, what do you call it? A sabbatical mm -hmm. and just like play some games for a couple months. Cause I, I, I have not like, I, I haven't played a game recreationally in, you know, a year, Ooh. no more than, more than, you know, like five minutes or whatever. Yeah. So that will be fun and just, just kind of refresh and, and catch up on everything that's been happening for the past year. Cause obviously a uh, big steam library of stuff to, to get through. Um, but I, I have an, another game that I'm very excited about. I think it's similar enough to dodgeball that to, to the current game. That I can take my current fan base and and move them all over to the new project. Um, I don't know if Kickstarter would be a viable thing. Kickstarter seems really weird these days. Yeah, Kickstarter's scary. Uh, like because it could blow up, it could not, and I don't know where the trust level is between the audience and uh, Kickstarter developers just because of kind of random projects that might have not come to fruition. But like you. Yeah. You never know. It just depends, like the degree, the strength of your audience at this point. So it might be possible if I do a Kickstarter that the people that felt really passionate about Disco Dodgeball would be like, okay, I'll totally throw down. You know, might might help me get that that little bit off the ground. On the other hand, it's a lot of work, and maybe just doing another early access thing would be would be more natural. So I haven't figured that part out yet. But uh, basically, the key is to to do something that in that same vein is that would excite the same number of people rather than starting from scratch. Because uh, when I when I switched from mobile to PC, I basically took whatever meager fan base I had, and it was like, okay, this is you know basically starting from zero all over again. Yeah. I'd like to not not do that again if I don't have to. Uh, what is the the overall maybe the the most important lesson you learned from the development of Dodgeball, the release of it, and this kind of post release period where you're doing everything? What what can you take from this uh, besides the audience you built up? and uh push toward the next project to guarantee if not guarantee set yourself up for the most uh, the highest success possible with the next one i don't know if there's any one thing i think i think there's a lot of things that uh just steam in general that i'm observing and trying to keep in mind so i think there's a lot of games coming out that that look like great games and then they're just not getting not getting picked up by people and it seems like steam is the audience there is looking for kind of these deep uh, these system-based games, mm -hmm. you know, like I mean, that covers stuff like the survival genre, which is not not what I want to get into. No, I, I you uh, know, I'm gonna say you shouldn't do that. <laughs> There's there are plenty of those out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. But stuff like Big Pharma and and this week, um, of all the what I would consider high-profile titles to launch this week on Steam, the one that was the top seller is this one I'd never heard of, uh, Planet Base. Um, and it's kind of it's you know it's building a base on. The planet, you know, it's like, and never heard of it, didn't see any press, didn't see anything on Reddit, and it's been the top seller, right? And so it's that people kind of want these intricate systems to play around with. Like, that's the PC audience. Uh, so I think having those elements in your game are, are going to be key. My struggles with Dodgeball in particular about multiplayer, I, you know, I, I knew 100% going in what a multiplayer game entailed. I knew I've seen so many games try to do multiplayer and fail, and I think... Building the game in a certain way helped avoid that death spiral yeah. that happens to to a lot of games, but it's still this constant like you know like I said I'm, I'm not even like fully happy despite like everything that's gone well with it because it's like well it's it doesn't have a hundred thousand people playing it <laughs> online all the time and like there's still every now and then a comment in the forums like oh like 
you know, where's all the players? Like, great game, and, and no one's playing it. And, like, that leaves you feeling frustrated. Mm. And knowing that, you know, even if I, if I were to get, like, that big critical mass of players, then hacking would be a problem, and then abuse would be a problem. Mm. And so multiplayer is just this... It's this really interesting space where I, I think it helped it spread on YouTube very well because channels could play against each other. But it's um it's just really stressful. Yeah, no. <laughs> and never you never really feel maybe satisfied or done with it. So I think the next one uh, I'd I'd love to try a single player game next time. It's just it's just a lot of stress. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean without a doubt, like I, as soon I feel like there's a lot of Steam games that are one or two small breaks away from breaking out. Uh, yeah. And I mean, it has to be frustrating to, you know, you get this huge probably surge from something like Giant Bomb and something like all these YouTubers and you feel like, man, if I could just get like one more, if I could just get like one more quote unquote influencer, I hate that term so much, yeah. um, to play this, like that's sometimes all it takes. But I mean, there's only so much you can control. Um, and yeah, it's even though, of course, you're never going to be fully satisfied with something unless it really breaks out. I mean what you've done with it has been extremely impressive and I'm happy to see that people like Giant Bomb and uh, other uh, people online have given it attention and although I'm bummed it didn't get more critical response and people talking about it in that way I'm glad there are at least some reviews out there talking about it because it's it's unique it's different and it's something as soon as I saw it I'm like I want to play that yeah, and yeah. write <laughs> about it and thankfully uh, you know I have very nice editors who were like hey if you think it's if, you know if you have an interest in the game let's 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 do this let's write yeah. about it so that was fun for me to do. Um, so at the end of these podcasts, I usually like to kind of leave off with one final tip. Uh, for me, it's always something about writing because I've never made a video game. <laughs> but for you, it, it, this is a perfect opportunity for you to kind of leave off with like, hey, if you are trying to get on Steam or if you are an indie developer looking to break at least break out to a, you know, a certain extent, here's a good tip for you. So I, I can kind of start with, um, uh, and this relates to kind of what happened between uh, me, you, and Disco Dodgeball. Um, so if you're a freelancer, uh, you are, if you're a freelancer, especially for IGN, for uh, Polygon, for GameSpot, you're not going to review Fallout 4. Like, you're not going to get the next <laughs> Call of Duty game. It's just not how it works. They want the big games. It's understandable. They want the big games in the hands of the full-time staff. Uh, so while a lot of what you're going to do as a freelancer is wait around for an editor to come to you, what you can also do is go to the editor. And one of the best ways to do that is to have a review code in hand at that time saying, hey here's this indie game that uh, I just got. Um, would you like me to review it? And once you build up a rapport with that editor, uh, they will trust you and trust your judgment with what you're doing. And that's what I did uh, with your game. And that's what I've done with you know, well over a dozen games at this point. And for me, it's fun because one, it's work and work is great. And two, uh, although it is more and more difficult to find the quality games on Steam, uh, even on PSN and Xbox Live, like games are just coming out. I've always enjoyed finding the smaller games that might uh, have something different about them that I can talk about and I can explore and I can uh, challenge myself creatively and also uh, also shine a light on projects so like, hey, this is cool and you should look at this. And I've been fortunate enough to have a platform the size of GameSpot to do that so people can look at that. So if you are a freelance reviewer and you are looking for... Um, ways to start reviewing more games one of the best ways is just reaching out and i guarantee you like almost every single indie dev i reach out to gives me a response it because it, you know they're not gonna very rarely they're gonna be like no i don't want you to cover my video game right <laughs> <laughs> like yeah it's, and so it's 
it's a good way of doing it. And I found a lot of success that way. So that's kind of my tip for this week. Uh, so Eric, I know once again, I sprung this on you earlier. So do you happen to have anything uh, kind of leave to uh, indie devs? Sure. So <laughs> I think uh, one thing that keeps sticking in my head is uh, there's this Calvin and, Head, Calvin and Hobbes comic strip. Uh, where Calvin found some kind of like secret message that he's trying to decode. And the, he says at the end, like, this is so cool. I have to go to the bathroom. And I think for me, like when I'm trying to pick a game or, or when I think of a game that's going to succeed on, on Steam or in this market of like crowded people, the, the concept has to be so cool that, that you want to go to the bathroom. And like that, that kind of, your game has to need to exist in the world. And if you can find a concept that, that has that element, not just like, oh, it's another, it's like a, a good platformer, or it's it's another one of these. Um, it really has to excite people enough uh, to to take a chance on it, and so kind of look for that. And if you can, if you can view your game from this uh, neutral perspective and still get excited about it, uh, that's the kind of stuff you should you should focus on. Um, from a more practical level, you know, just take a lot of chances. You don't. You don't know what kind of breaks are going to come your way. Uh, some really, some ones might slip by that'll be really frustrating. But the idea is like, just build a bunch of games, uh, keep trying. Eventually, uh, some things are going to start going your way, and just make sure you're ready to take advantage of them, rather than like betting everything on one giant project. Yeah. Right. Just, just keep rolling the dice. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, thank you very much for coming on and talking to me today, Eric. It's it's always interesting talking to uh, developers who I, whose games I have reviewed. Uh, right. <laughs> it's it's not something that really happens very much. You don't get a lot of like post review discussion with developer. It's not something that uh, I really see, and it's it's always been fun with me. I, I try to do it whenever possible to, you know, discuss you know how you take the criticism and maybe even if you point out like, hey, by the way, you totally missed something and you're an idiot. Uh, you know what? Totally possible. I could be an idiot sometimes. So uh, once again. Thank you. I, I'm happy to see that you did have the success of the game. And uh, I really do think moving forward, your next project will be reviewed by more sites because you are the Disco Dodgeball guy, which is a pretty cool name for your title. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, congrats Thank on you. that. And congrats to uh, you and your wife also on the baby. So thanks very much. And thanks for having me on. No problem at all. So also thank you to everyone for listening and hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099. <laughs>